Please open your Bibles to Second Chronicles chapter 10. Our study tonight will be the entire chapter, verses 1 to 19. Second Chronicles chapter 10. Listen now to God's holy, inerrant, and life-giving word. Rehoboam went to Shechem, for all Israel had come to Shechem to make him king. And as soon as Jeroboam, the son of Nabat, heard of it, for he was in Egypt where he had fled from King Solomon, then Jeroboam returned from Egypt, and they sent and called him. And Jeroboam and all Israel came and said to Rehoboam, Your father made our yoke heavy. Now therefore lighten the hard service of your father and his heavy yoke on us, and we will serve you. He said to them, Come to me again in three days. So the people went away. Then King Rehoboam took counsel with the old men who had stood before Solomon his father while he was yet alive, saying, How do you advise me to answer this people? And they said to him, If you will be good to this people and please them and speak good words to them, then they will be your servants forever. But he abandoned the counsel that the old men gave him and took counsel with the young men who had grown up with him and stood before him. And he said to them, what do you advise that we answer this people who have said to me, lighten the yoke that your father put on us? And the young man who had grown up with him said to him, thus shall you speak to the people who said to you, your father made our yoke heavy, but you lighten it for us. Thus shall you say to them, my little finger is thicker than my father's thighs. And now, whereas my father laid on you a heavy yoke, I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. So Jeroboam and all the people came to Rehoboam the third day, as the king said, come to me again the third day. And the king answered them harshly. And forsaking the counsel of the old men, King Rehoboam spoke to them according to the counsel of the young men, saying, My father made your yoke heavy, but I will add to it. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. So the king did not listen to the people, for it was a turn of affairs brought about by God, that the Lord might fulfill his word, which he spoke by Ahijah the Shilonite to Jeroboam, son of Nabat. And when all Israel saw that the king did not listen to them, the people answered the king, What portion have we in David? We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. Each of you to your tents, O Israel. Look now to your own house, David. So all Israel went to their tents. But Rehoboam reigned over the people of Israel who lived in the cities of Judah. Then King Rehoboam said to Hadoram, who was taskmaster over the forced labor, And the people of Israel stoned him to death with stones. And King Rehoboam quickly mounted his chariot to flee to Jerusalem. So Israel has been in rebellion against the house of David to this day. The grass withers, the flowers fall, and the word of our God abides forever. Amen. Father in heaven, we thank you for your revelation of yourself in these events and in your word. And we pray that we would be made wise unto salvation through them. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, as we transition with Second Chronicles from the glorious reign of Israel's King Solomon, readers who are familiar with the uh, Bible as a whole might notice that there has been some information missing from the Chronicles account. 
First Kings chapter 11, for instance, gives the depressing news of how Solomon took a great multitude of foreign wives who then turned his heart towards their false gods. First, King, uh, First Kings 11, 1 to 2. In fact, I think if there was ever a need to prove the doctrine of total depravity, the fact that, I quote from First Kings, the fact that Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites, well, that must surely prove it. Dismaying though it is, the biblical record tells us that the same man who built the temple for the Lord on Mount Zion later built, this is First Kings eleven six a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, and for Molech, the abomination of the Ammonites. And yes, that does suggest that Solomon would have sacrificed some of his children at the altar of Molech. Well, the Lord was so angry for this most grievous sin of idolatry that in 1 Kings 11.11, he declares, I will surely tear the kingdom from you, and I will give it to your servant. And yet we learn that Solomon himself would not see the loss of his kingdom. It would be for the sake of his father David that he would continue his years. He would live them out in the fame of his power and his wealth and his glory. But as it so often occurs, how often we see this. When there's one generation that is blessed by the Lord, but they don't respond to that blessing by walking in his ways, it's the next generation that pays the price. I've used this passage today to talk about the, the, the peril of measuring success by numbers. Solomon had it all, but he was disobeying the Lord. And if you'd gone to them and you'd said, Solomon, you're not supposed to be worshiping Milcom. Some, some people would have said, how can you say that? Look how rich we are. Look how powerful we are. Look at everything we've got. But you seem to be their children who would pay the price. I, I fear the children of evangelicalism today may pay a price for what's going on among us. Well, the question is then asked, why doesn't the chronicler tell us all these things? Why doesn't he give us a more supposedly honest account of Solomon that includes these grievous and long-reaching sins? Now, the most common answer to that question, and it's not a bad one, relates to the purpose of chronicles versus the purpose of kings. By the way, there is no, there was no one original first and second kings. It was one long he is scroll. It was when they translated it into Greek that they had to divide it into first and second. So what, the answer is given that Chronicles simply has a different purpose than kings. First and second kings was compiled during the Babylonian exile. And it, asks, it provides the answer to the question, what went wrong? How did we, of all people, end up with, our, with Jerusalem destroyed, the temple burned and torn down, and we end up exiles in a pagan city? First Kings gives the answer by emphasizing the sins, uh, particularly the idolatry of the people. And in contrast, Chronicles was compiled after the exile, after Kings. It's very clear from this chapter alone that he knows that he thinks that you've read First uh, Kings. He, he refers to events that are recorded not here but there. And it was recorded for the generation that had returned to Jerusalem for the restoration after God had forgiven them. Now there the need was not to explain what had happened. Kings had done that. But it was to encourage the people that if they repented, God would bless them. And so the, the, tend, the selectivity of material in Chronicles and the emphasis is going to be, and in fact we're going to see this even in Rehoboam's account, 
that when we humble ourselves before the Lord, no matter how bad it's been, when we come back to him, he receives us and he shows his grace. And so that is given as the explanation of why he seems to have a policy of only telling us the good things about the life of Solomon. Now, that explanation, I think, is true so far as it goes, but I would argue it's not sufficient. Uh, for instance, one reason for that is that the, solid, the Chronicler certainly gives us very negative details of other kings. If you read First Chronicles, he's going to tell about some of David's dis, uh, defeats and his disgraces. Later on, we're certainly going to hear a lot of fairly lurid details about the sins of Solomon's successors. So why him? Why, does he the, why is he the one who gets the special treatment? I, I would understand it this way, that the chronicler has presented Solomon primarily as a type of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's going to present him as a picture of what will be truly in the reign of Christ, the glory and the wisdom and the, the riches in the Holy Spirit. To the chronicler, Solomon appears in biblical history not only as a historical figure, a very important one, played a decisive role in his generation, but he is given as a foretaste of the glory, riches, and wisdom that God has purposed to accomplish through his own son. In other words, the inspired aim of the chronicler was not only to describe what what, what had happened, he not only has a general grace-centered perspective, But he also wants to point his readers to the knowledge of God and his purposes in salvation that will be fulfilled only in the true son of the house of David, one greater than Solomon, as Jesus said, the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, 2 Chronicles 9 concluded Solomon's 40-year reign with these words, verse 31, Solomon slept with his fathers and was buried in the city of David his father, and Rehoboam his son reigned in his place. Now, as we ourselves experience, transitions of power can be rather tense. And the record of the books of Kings makes it very clear that the beginning of Rehoboam's reign would require as much wisdom as his vaunted father had possessed. 1 Kings chapter 10 reveals that, or 2 Chronicles 10, our chapter, shows, however, that instead of wisdom, what Rehoboam would be remembered for is his pride which resulted ultimately by the end of this chapter in uh, very much of what he'd inherited from his father Solomon and his grandfather David. Our passage plays out in three passages. We have a very tense situation, and then we have his embrace of poor counsel, and then we have the aftermath of his proud speech. This inauguration of Rehoboam, therefore, would witness his rejection and the rejection of the Davidic dynasty by 10 of Israel's 12 tribes, producing a division that was never restored. Well, as the account of Rehoboam continues in the next couple of chapters, we actually will see God's mercy there, but not in chapter 10. In this decisive opening scene of his reign, it's God's judgment on sin and the folly of human pride. It all spells disaster for Israel. Now, when Solomon became king, he was enthroned in the city of Jerusalem by the common acclamation of the people. We see that at the beginning of 1 King. But here we read that Rehoboam, look at verse 1, he went to Shechem, that his reign would be acclaimed there. Now, that reveals trouble brewing in the national air. Shechem was located about a day's ride north of Jerusalem. It was the scene of many 
prior uh, notable events, probably most significantly, is it was at Shechem that Joshua ends the book of Joshua by gathering the tribes after they've come into the land of Canaan, after they've pretty much conquered the Canaanites and they've given the apportionment who's going to go where. It was at Shechem that they had their, their ratification, as it were, of the arrangement that they would enjoy in the land of Canaan in the promised land. It's where the nation's establishment was erected. I think in terms of American history, if Jerusalem would be the capital in Washington, D.C., Shechem was the Philadelphia where the U.S. Constitution had been approved. Now, Israelite society had had a pretty severe north-south divide, a cultural division that went back quite a while. You remember that before David became king of Israel, he was king of Judah, and there was a civil war, and it was the house of Saul reigning in the ten northern tribes. They were at war with Judah and Benjamin in the south, as other countries have had a north-south divide. So was there one culturally and in the history of the people of Israel. And it no doubt got worse during Solomon's time. And we read earlier about how the splendor of Solomon's city, the gold that poured in, uh, there's descriptions of the lavishness of his table and the variety. Well, who do you think was funding that? It was the 12 tribes, 10 of whom were in the north, and the wealth and influence and the culture was all flowing from the north to the south. Now, with that background, a gathering at Shechem in the heartland of the north indicates that there is a desire to rethink this whole arrangement, to regroup at least, to work out a renewed understanding of how the tribes would interact in the nation. Well, verse 1 notes two features of this national assembly. First, all Israel had come to Shechem. That means leaders from all 12 tribes had come there. And second, their purpose was one that the young prince himself, no doubt, uh, would have approved. The purpose, verse 1, is to make him king. That's a pretty good deal for him. The the whole purpose of the Shechem assembly is to make him king. The the problem, however, from Rehoboam's perspective, is the implication that his reign requires the people's consent. That's how he sees the problem. His father Solomon had acted as an absolute monarch. And again, Solomon's reign is an interesting phenomenon. I think the only way to handle it, as I said, is as a type of Christ. And Rehoboam's not a type of Christ, but he'd never known a time when the king needed approval, much less permission, in order to reign. And so the assembly at Shechem was going to be a test of his character for sure. Now another problem for Rehoboam is seen in verse 2 in the appearance at Shechem of Jeroboam, the son of Nabat. Now, if we've been reading through Chronicles, you go, we have no idea who Jeroboam, the son of Nabat is. Well, you won't say that if you've read 1 Kings because 1 Kings gives the record uh, uh, that is not included in Chronicles, although he assumes clearly that we're aware of it from Kings. It turns out that along with Solomon falling into the sin of idolatry, he received, as God's uh, response to that, the, uh, the raising up of competing interests against the house of David within Israel. Jeroboam was from, you, got, you guessed it, the leading tribe of the northern tribes. He was from Ephraim. That was the chief tribe of the north. 
1 Kings 11.26. He'd actually been a supervisor on Solomon's grand uh, uh, construction projects. And, and the king noticed his ability. He was a really uh, extraordinary man. And, and Solomon singled him out for promotion fairly early on. He makes Jeroboam the person who will, who will be in charge of all the forced labor from the north. 1 Kings 11.27 and 28. The problem is that shortly after this promotion was made, uh, Jeroboam was traveling down a road when he was greeted by a prophet whose name is Ahijah. And he informs Jeroboam on the Lord's behalf that he is going to be given the rule of 10 of Israel's 12 tribes after those 10 have been torn from the hands of Solomon's heir. Uh, 1 Kings eleven thirty-two and 33. Now Solomon finds out about this prophecy, so he sets out to kill Jeroboam. Jeroboam flees to Egypt. That's why it says he was in Egypt. Egypt became the headquarters of the exile, the Israelite protest movement in exile to the house of David. He is its chief figure. Now against that, you go, well, that's helped me to understand Second Chronicles 10. It sure does, because against that background, verse 2 is pretty ominous. And as soon as Jeroboam, the son of Nabat, heard of it, he was in Egypt where he'd fled from King Solomon. Then Jeroboam returned from Egypt, and they summoned him to come to the assembly at Shechem. Now we're not told if Rehoboam was aware of all this. But when all Israel came to broker their arrangement for how it's going to be under his kingship, it's this very Jeroboam who comes forward as their spokesman. And he brought a complaint to the new king relating to the working conditions under Solomon's building program. Verse 4, your father made our yoke heavy. Now therefore lighten the hard service of your father and his heavy yoke on us and we will serve you. Verse 4. Now that seems a pretty reasonable proposition. Solomon had indeed levied onerous taxation on the tribes in order to build his city and then to fund the lavishness of his court. We, 1 Kings 4, 20-28 gives details. He also required each Israelite to give pretty extensive national service every year in order to supervise the foreigners constricted into forced labor. 2 Chronicles 8, 9. Now, while Solomon was king, there wasn't much you could do about it. He's building the temple of the Lord. He's building the holy city of God. The burden, though onerous, could be borne. But four decades of this heavy yoke was getting to be enough. The tribes wanted assurances that these imposed exertions had now come to an end. Now, the true matter set before Rehoboam concerned the nature of spiritual leadership among God's people. In an irony that could not have been lost on the original readers of Second Chronicles, the chronicler places Jeroboam in the shoes of Moses as he's seeking to negotiate improved conditions with a sort of Pharaoh and the role of Pharaohs being played by Rehoboam. The people remembered as well that David actually had never been enthroned as a despotic monarch. David himself was acclaimed at a national assembly like the one they had gathered at Shechem. And he had been made king by the people, yes, in accordance with God's word. But listen to what God said to him through a prophet on that occasion. First Chronicles 11.2, you shall be shepherd of my people Israel. That's the nature 
of the kind of spiritual leadership God was granting to the kings of Israel, just as it's the nature of spiritual leadership in the church. Now, shepherd leadership is of a certain kind. Sometimes it's called servant leadership. I dare say the shepherd imagery is very vivid. The shepherd's whole labor is for the benefit and for the well-being of the flock. How does a shepherd measure success when they are when they get where they're supposed to be? When they're in, in biblical language, don't be offended. When they're sleek and fat, that's the, the, the biblical language. When 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 they're furry, his whole life is is thinking about them, going ahead of them, laboring on their behalf, protecting them, feeding them, providing them. This is the kind of leadership that God wants from leaders in the church. Listen to how Peter puts it in First Peter five two to three. The same metaphor shepherd the flock to the elders shepherd the flock of God that is among you exercising oversight not under compulsion but willingly as God would have you not for shameful gain but eagerly not domineering over those in your charge but being examples to the flock I see, if this is the kind of leadership that God has actually installed in David, David's the great illustration until the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, then Rehoboam should have had no problem answering the assembly at Shechem. This should not have been a big deal. The response, what was their stated purpose? It was very agreeable to him. We will serve you. If he'd been a godly, humble man with his Holy Spirit, he would have responded, thank you for reminding me of God's word. Always beware when Christian leaders, including me if it comes to it, resent being told what God wants them to do. <laughs> it's God who he's though Everyone is supposed to be serving God. What he should have said was, uh, I, I, I embrace exactly what the Lord had laid down to my grandfather, David, to be a shepherd, a tender, loving, yes, to give instruction, to be sure, to be respected and followed, but to care for and love the flock. By the way, the presence of Jeroboam, if he knew about it, I think he must have at this point, that made the matter even more urgent. Now, we wonder if Jeroboam maybe overstated the actual situation. Scholars debate back and forth. Was Solomon really despotic like this? Let's not discount who the one is publishing this news report. It's Jeroboam who, who, who believes, and he's right, his calling from God is to supplant him. But the fact that the people readily agreed with it shows that there must be something to it. Well, the graciousness of Rehoboam's response was very important, but he had no grace to give. All he could say was he, all he could do was ask for time. Verse 5, he said to them, come to me again in three days. So the people went away. Winfred Corduan gives what I think is a telling assessment. He says, apparently everyone except Rehoboam understood that this simple request was much more than that. It was an ultimatum. Jeroboam made its fulfillment a condition of submitting to the new king. He asked Rehoboam to lighten the load and we will serve you. For Rehoboam, the question was simply on whose terms he would be king. All that mattered to him was whether it was his terms or the people's. Well, the failure of Rehoboam to give an immediate answer to these gathered tribes is our first inkling of what's going to become, very clear, is a besetting sin of pride. But at least he was humble enough to seek counsel about how he should respond. At least that's how it seems. The reality is different. As Rehoboam goes on in the middle verses to reject the wise counsel of the 
old advisors for the rash arrogance of his younger friends. He he reveals, yes, it's the folly of youth, but it's more than the folly of youth. It, It shows us how pride will rob us of discernment and will ruin our opportunities of blessing. Well, he left the Shechem assembly in verse 6. Rehoboam took counsel with the old men who had stood before Solomon, his father, while he was yet alive. So he goes to the older men. Now, these would have been the officials who were actually the official advisors of King Solomon, and they would have benefited from quite a long experience and association with Rehoboam's great father. Now, older men are not always right. Sometimes the young are right. Older men are not always wise. And yet, the Bible would counsel us to at least give an ear to the gray hair. In this case, their advice did reflect both insight and good judgment. Rehoboam asked them, how do you advise me to answer this people, verse 7, and they answered with a suggestion that now would be a very good time for the new young king to exhibit some humility and to accommodate what were actually pretty reasonable concerns from the people. Here's what they said, verse 7, if you will be good to this people and please them and speak good words to them, then they will be your servants forever. Well, the counsel of these older men was right. The burden on the people had been hard, even if Jeroboam might have embellished a bit. Moreover, to agree to be fair and to give lenient treatment would have the effect of achieving for Rehoboam the very thing that he most wanted, that he would reign as king over the United Nation. Notice the wisdom of their reply. They said he should be good to the people. He should speak pleasing and good words to them. People say, look, leadership's not a popularity contest. That's not what they're saying. Do good and speak good. That's what we're asking of you. They were employing a formula that Dale Ralph Davis put this way, concessions will conquer complaints. Well, the people were not demanding a restriction in the new king's powers or rights. They were simply seeking a a, a fresh assurance of benevolence. And the older man counseled a course of godly humility, servant leadership, moderation in the exercise of power. These are the very aims that should have been in his heart all along. He should have therefore given an immediate agreement. If he had, they would have been, as they said, his servants forever. While this counsel given by the older men to Rehoboam is good advice for anyone who's called to leadership, fathers in the home, leaders in the workplace or the nation should cultivate a candid relationship with those who follow them. Their aim should be to do good and to speak good words so as to foster a willing and amiable following. I, I know very well, sometimes commands have to be given. Sometimes the authority has to be enforced. But this is the policy that we should adopt. Criticisms will be warranted, punishments, but it should be tempered with a general policy of encouragement in which good performance garners praise. Those who follow will be motivated whenever they realize that their leader is acting for the good of everyone, not merely for his or her benefit. Now we can know that Rehoboam's problem was not merely the folly of youth, that he was inexperienced, he didn't know what he didn't know. It's actually more than that. It's the pride of a lofty heart. And we can know that because we read in verse 8 that he abandoned the counsel that the old men gave him. Now notice he hasn't even yet heard the counsel of the young fools. 
As soon as he hears the godly counsel, his heart reacts against it. Why? Because he's proud. That's what happens. His mind does not yield to the biblical thought that gray hairs might have learned a thing or two. He rejected the counsel of elders, not because he had good answers for it, not because he actually had a counter-argument that made any sense. He rejected it because he did not like it. He, I'll put it this way. He did, and I said, how often it comes down to this. He did not want to serve. He wanted to be served. That was his pride. He wanted the prerogatives of kingship without the obligations. How common it is today. Martin Lloyd-Jones puts it this way, pride is always ready to see insults and to take umbrage. It's not difficult to see how Rehoboam saw an insult in this proposal. It cut across everything he held dear with respect to the office and function of a king. He desired the allegiance and service of the people, but in his way, not in their way. The idea of a king listening to a proposal from the people and the idea of gaining what he desired at the expense of admitting and confirming that his father had not been perfect, that there was something wrong with the system he was now head over, it was to him unthinkably insulting. Now Lloyd-Jones points out that what Rehoboam stumbled on in his pride regarding this assembly happens to be the very stumbling block That's the way the New Testament puts it, a stumbling block. It's the very objection of pride that so many unbelieving people have to the gospel message of Jesus Christ. Uh, The Bible offers us what what most people want. Rehoboam wanted to be king. That's what was being offered to him. What do people want today? They want to lead a fulfilling life. They they, they want to, to have a secure future. They want to go to heaven, however they conceive of it. These are the very things, life beyond death, eternal life, fulfillment in this life, the very things everyone wants. But you see, what the gospel does not do is offer salvation on our terms or dare I say, to our praise. It doesn't offer to us in a way that we can get the credit, that we can get the glory. It's not on our terms. Jeroboam didn't want to admit that his father had been wrong by implication that he was wrong. Unbelieving people today do not want to confess their sins. They do not want to seek God's mercy in Jesus Christ. Lloyd-Jones says this, we are prepared to listen to any teaching that will tell us how to save ourselves and help us to do so, but we feel insulted by a gospel that tells us that we cannot save ourselves, that only God in Christ through the blood of his cross is able to save us as sinners. One person who frankly admitted how many unbelievers actually think was the Dowager Duchess of Buckingham. Her friend was the Countess of Huntington, who had invited her to come to an occasion that she had arranged, the Countess had, where the great evangelist George Whitfield would be preaching. And Countess Hutchington was a very famous lady. She was the financial backer of the Methodist revival. She had a great mercy for souls. She was a lively converted uh, aristocrat. And she cared about the lost souls of all of her fellow aristocrats. And she would arrange these gatherings and use her social connection. The people kind of felt they had to come. And she'd get someone like George Whitfield to come and preach the gospel. This is what had happened. And after this particular occasion, she received a rather stern note from the Dowager, the Dowager, Dowager Duchess of Buckingham. Here's what she wrote. I thank your ladyship for the information concerning the Methodist preachers. 
their doctrines are most repulsive and strongly tinctured with impertinence and disrespect before their superiors. It is, frankly, monstrous to be told that you have a heart as sinful as the common wretches that crawl on the earth. I am highly offended. (laughs) At least she's honest. That's her response. Now, probably like her, Rehoboam's high station in life, he'd never not been a prince, probably fueled this easily offended prize. But it's not just the highborn who resent the gospel's message of sin and grace. We all, by nature, think ourselves better than others. There's all some common wretches who we think, well, maybe they're sinners, but I cannot be. You don't have to be highborn to refuse the gospel with an injured pride. And yet, just as the elders' counsel to Rehoboam was obviously wise, don't you realize that the Bible's claims about our sin are easily proved? It's not very hard to prove the Bible's claims that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It's, It's obvious a consideration of the Ten Commandments will show it. Is there anything wrong, we must ask? Is there anything unjust? Is it really offensive to be asked that we would humble ourselves, that we would abase ourselves and repent before a being who is the holy, absolute, and eternal God? There is nothing actually irrational about the gospel. It's the pride of sin. It's the pride of unbelief. It's Rehoboam's foolish pride. The gospel says that God in his love has sent his own son to bear our guilt on the cross before his holy justice. And even though this gospel message offers us the very best possible blessings, until the Holy Spirit comes, man in his pride will not yield. I I wonder if your objections to the gospel have been this way. Will not yield, turns away from God, abandoning him for different counsel often more up-to-date counsel. It's the new and improved over the old and stodgy Bible, however foolish it is on the surface. How mad it was for Rehoboam to reject the wise and good counsel of the elders, but my friends, it is a greater folly to turn your back on the only God when he speaks the truth of our sin and offers a saving grace that will only and can only be found in his son dying on the cross. Well, it was only after he'd hardened his heart to the obviously good and judicious counsel of the older men that Rehoboam then went to the younger men. Verse 8, the young men who'd grown up with him and stood before him. Now, Interestingly, Rehoboam's 41 years old, so he's not a teenager when he takes the crown. These evidently are the, the, the aristocrats he grew up with. They weren't all that young either, but they had the folly of youth. They were foolish because they were proud. They were the sons of wealth and privilege. They're, they're the ones, remember earlier, that you know, gold was so common in Jerusalem that the, all the common household, other cups were gold. They thought silver was like refuge. It's these people he's talking about. And so Rehoboam goes to them. They don't have any sympathy for those with harder lives. What do they know about it? And he says, what do you advise that we answer this people who have said to me, lighten the yoke that your father put on us? And the proud fools answered, thus shall you speak to the people who said to you, your father made our yoke heavy, but you lighten it for us. Thus shall you say to them, my little finger is thicker than my father's thighs. 
And now, whereas my father laid on you a heavy yoke, I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, I will discipline you with scorpions. Such was their counsel. Well, Dale Ralph Davis recalls the instruction that England's King James I gave to his royal son. He told him that God had made the young prince a little God to sit upon his throne and to rule over other men. Well, that's certainly the spirit of the young friends as they give, what they, they give because of that attitude, they give Rehoboam a, a comeback. That's what they give to reinforce the social order. If Solomon's thigh was thick, then his son's finger, by the way, the Hebrew does not use the word finger, it actually more likely refers to a different body part, is even thicker than his father's thigh. If the point had not been made clear by that, well, let's be crystal clear, they said. He would add to their yoke. He would increase the burden, and he would enforce it brutally. The scorpion was a kind of scourge that was used on the backs of workers. Now, as we consider the fact that Rehoboam preferred the proud advice of arrogant youth, what we're looking at is the, what happens in a hardened heart. Now, isn't it interesting that it was Solomon who wrote the book of Proverbs? And in Proverbs, he writes, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Proverbs 9.10. Well, there's no fear of the Lord here. There's no humility. Uh, apparently, Solomon did not impress that precept on his royal son. And notice as well, it's very telling. It'll be telling in our circumstances as well. We never see him seeking a word from the Lord. You know, there's prophets in Jerusalem. Not, we're not told he, he, he lacked wisdom, and so he wasn't quite sure what to do. His heart was struggling within him. So he went to, he went to hear the word of the Lord. He went to a prophet in Jerusalem. It's, it's ninth century Jerusalem. There's prophets in town. He doesn't consult them. He doesn't pray. He doesn't get on his knees and ask, Lord, Lord, which his father had done, to give me a good spirit, give me discernment, give me the proper attitude. He doesn't read God's word, he doesn't pray. By the way, as a pastor, I have found over the years that there is a certain kind of scenario where church members only want to talk to the pastor after, not before, they've made a very contentious decision. They're determined to do what might be suspected as foolish. And so they don't sit down and say, can you give me biblical insight? Can we pray to it? They, they come and ask for what to do after the catastrophe has come. Well, let's not be that way. Uh, Romans 12, 2 reminds us of the benefits of developing a biblical mind. It's one of the reasons we need to be in daily Bible reading, daily Bible studying. And then when we have a big decision, we should consult, maybe with help, what the Bible says. But Romans 12, 2 says that we should develop a biblically conformed mind so that you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. We see none of that in him. He has no consultation of the word of God. James 1 verse 5 adds the principle of which Rehoboam's father is perhaps the chief biblical illustration. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given. And many times, many times, I have realized I didn't have the wisdom to deal with it. It was going to, something that's going to require great wisdom. The right thing to do is to consult the word of God, to get on our knees and to pray to God and ask him to give us the wisdom. One of the great promises of the Bible is right here in James 1.5. Ask for wisdom and he will give it to you without reproach. None of that is seen. Why? 
because of the hardened heart of an unbeliever in the grip of pride. Well, he'd pay a heavy price for it. The result of this foolish pride was a historical disaster of epic proportions. All Israel regathers on the third day, and the king appears, and he delivers the put-down, put into his mouth by his foolish friends. By the way, there's always a danger. Let me, I think it does warrant a comment to the young. Be wary when you think your friends have all the wisdom and your parents have none. Be wary if all of your counsel's coming from uh, hot-headed friends who, uh, who only see things from your perspective. This is the kind of thing that happens. Sometimes they are right. The Bible would urge you to consider it's not maybe always the best way to go. And the king answered them harshly. He said, my father made your yoke heavy, but I will add to it. My father disciplined you with whips. I will discipline you with sore scorpions. So the king did not listen to the people. Now we have to wonder, what did he think was going to happen? Apparently he was thinking like King James I had taught his son. His pride had so blinded him that what happened actually caught him by surprise. It happened immediately when all Israel saw the king, did not listen to them. The people answered the king, what portion have we in David? We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse, the, 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 the David's father, Second Chronicles 10, 16. And then they issued the cry of rebellion that had been heard in previous generations. Each of you to your tents, O Israel. Let me translate that. Every tribe for themselves. The nation is dissolved. Now, politically, the rebellion of Shechem was absolutely disastrous. And here's a good lesson for us. In one prideful swoop of folly, he wipes out the achievement of 80 years that it took David and Solomon to accomplish. The expression that pride goeth before a fall applies for the son of Solomon. But the real catastrophe was spiritual, or we might better say was covenantal. The cry against the house of David was apostasy from the Lord's covenant. In time it would lead to the loss of all God's benefits for these rival tribes. A few months ago we studied the book of Hosea. This is the beginning. Hosea was the end. They, got, they, were, they rejected the Lord. He submitted them to utter destruction. They were wiped out two centuries later. They had apostatized against the Lord. They lost all his blessings. Rejecting the house of David meant renouncing that monarchy by which God ruled over his people. You know, there's people today who have bad experiences in the church. And maybe they're really bad experiences. Maybe we're sympathetic from them. But the wrong response is to renounce the church. The church of the Lord Jesus Christ, the ministry of the word, the the thing is to find a faithful church. They had renounced that monarchy, which was designed in time. It was going to lead to the Lord Jesus Christ. Salvation was in David as it now is in Christ. Those two amount to the same thing. It also meant turning away from the temple, the one place where prayers to the true and living God were certain to be heard. They renounced the future and the present blessings of God's salvation. It's no surprise. Chronicles not going to deal with it. It's only about the southern kingdom. But Jeroboam will immediately lead them into an idolatry that they will never repent of. 
Well, we have to admit that Rehoboam is impressive in the sheer blindness of his folly and pride. And we see this in how he responds in verse 18. He thinks he's going to awe them. He has not gotten the message. He's going to cow the rebels into submission. He sends as his emissary none other than the taskmaster over the forced labor, a man named Hadaram, verse 18. This would be like sending the prison warden to negotiate with rebel prisoners who've made a jailbreak. It is not going to end well. It does not end well at all. They respond with fury. The people of Israel stoned him to death with stones. Now, at least this woke Rehoboam up. It implied a danger to himself. He tucks his tail. Verse 18, he quickly mounted his chariot to flee to Jerusalem. And the chronicle concludes with results that endured down to his own day, many centuries later. So Israel has been in rebellion against the house of David to this day. Well, it would be easy to conclude our reflections on Rehoboam's pride and folly, his loss of the bulk of the kingdom with Lessons on how to get good advice, how to make effective decisions. But interestingly, the chronicler does not really leave us that option because he makes a comment that requires our conclusion in verse 15. So the king did not listen to the people for it was a turn of affairs brought about by the Lord, by God, that the Lord might fulfill his word, which he spoke by Ahijah the Shilonite, to Jeroboam, the son of Nabat. Now, we noted earlier that Jeroboam took offense at the idea that he had to admit mistakes on his father's part. The idea that he had to rule with the consent of the governed. It's like people today who say, don't, don't ever ask me to confess my sins, much less obey the Bible. That, that's the kind of hardened unbelief. We've already seen that. But here's something actually even more offensive to the unbelieving mind. Namely, the Bible's claims that our affairs are ultimately determined by God's predestined will. That's the conclusion to the past. Oh, by the way, this all happened because God is the one who's sovereign. He's the one whose will ultimately matters, and he had predestined this. He gave word of it in advance through the prophet. To make this claim is not to deny that Rehoboam's actions or Solomon's or Jeroboam's did not cause the things to turn out the way they did. They did cause the things to turn out the way they did. They're not puppets. They made real decisions. Our actions matter. And yet the Bible insists that our salvation or our condemnation is, I'm quoting Ephesians 1.11, is predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Notice that Paul says that God's will is both predestined eternally in the past and it's presently being worked out by him with his sovereign omnipotence. There is a way, but here's the good news, there's a way for us to know that God has willed our salvation. We say, well, so God is the one who's decided. How do I know what's God's decided? Well, the way to know that God has willed your salvation is to bow before him in the humility of faith. It's those who surrender to his kingship. See, he's the one of whom James I was actually right. He's the one who doesn't think he's a little king, he, a little God. He knows he's a great God. And the way to know that God has willed for you to be saved is to bow before him, to humble yourself in faith, receiving his word 
owning him as God. It, it turns out that Rehoboam's affair was just one piece in a grand puzzle by which God was advancing his plan of redemption that would ultimately lead to the salvation of those who believe in Jesus Christ. That's the real story that's being told in Chronicles. Everything else is, is, is the stage set. So here's the question. Would the young king find this offensive to his pride? How do you feel about that, Rehoboam? Well, if so, then older heads should ask him. I would ask that today. Many people today will say, I'm willing to confess my sins. What I'm not willing to accept is that God is sovereign. Well, older, wiser, maybe grayer heads should ask the question, just who did you think was God? Because it is the Lord who is God. That is the truth. And, and, and for those who know God through his word, nothing could be better news. Because through his word, we learn what he's like. We learn of his goodness, of his faithfulness, his holiness, and his love. And so according to God's word, it's through humility that we become wise and that we become certain of agreement with God's will. Because what does God declare? God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord. This we know. And this sovereign will lift you up. Turns out it was never God's plan for Rehoboam to lead his people into salvation. That role had been reserved in eternity for someone else. Namely the Lord Jesus Christ. Likewise, Solomon was a type of Christ, not Christ himself. And so his legacy reminds us that our great need is for the true Christ to come. And he has come. He has come. And now we will only see the will of God for our salvation in the coming of the king the people wanted, the king the people really need, the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. Isn't it wonderful that what God willed in his sovereign predestination is that his son would be the good shepherd, even at the cost of his blood? In such contrast to the foolish pride of Rehoboam, Listen to what the Son of Man says when he comes to put into place the sovereign will of God. He gives his message to you for you to receive him in the humility of faith. He said the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Matthew twenty twenty eight. Let's pray. Father, we know that our lives matter. It matters whether we're foolish or not. But Lord, we are not sovereign. And we thank you that you are sovereign. And we pray, Lord, that the knowledge that you're the one who has decreed all things, that that would humble us. It would keep us from the folly of the pride of a man like Rehoboam. It would cause us to say, well, that I need to know what God says in his word. I need to seek his help in prayer. Lord, there's true wisdom. That's the meaning of the fear of the Lord. You are God. We are not. And Father, thank you that when the people need a true shepherd, that's what we need. And we find him in the Lord Jesus. Oh, his wisdom. Oh, his love. He laid down his life for the sheep. Make us wise unto salvation in the humility of faith that by your sovereign will we can know our salvation in the King, Lord Jesus, whom you have sent. We pray this in his name. Amen.